Welcome to FIC Focus, where Bloomberg Intelligence fixed income, credit currency, and commodity strategists and analysts discuss their short and long-term views on debt markets and issuers. Now, here's the Bloomberg Intelligence FIC research team. Welcome to the FIC Focus Podcast, Macro Matters Edition. I'm Ira Jersey. I'm the Chief U.S. Interest Rate Strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence, the research arm of Bloomberg LP. I'm here today with Anna Wong, the Chief U.S. Economist for Bloomberg Economics. Anna, thanks for coming back on FIC Focus. Happy to be here, Ira. So this is a little bit delayed. We had a lot going on last week after the Fed meeting. Um, so now that we've had some time to digest what Jay Powell said, what's been said, you know, kind of with a few speakers since then, and, and certainly the, the I don't want to say surprising changes to the statement, but there was some modest change to the statement, which I think was interesting. You know, what's generally your take now that we've, you know, now that we're beyond uh, a couple of days from the uh, from the meeting? Yeah, I mean, um, what what so the the uh, the Fed has signaled that um, they are very uh, much intending intending to slow the pace of rate hike. The new language in the policy statement is as strong as the signal that they can send about um, the, their intention to slow the pace of rate hike to fifty bits in December as they can without contradicting their previous guidance that they're going to be data dependent. You see, so so Powell cannot explicitly say that we're going to do 50 bips in December, no matter what, right? They can't because they have said they're data dependent. But they also have, they don't want to catch the market by surprise if they were to do it because that, that, that would have eased financial conditions. So the only way they could do it is you know signal it in this with this new language in the policy statement while accompanying with a very hawkish muscularly hawkish uh, 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 words about terminal rates so i think all in all powell did a masterful job in um, neutralizing the you know market rally um, when 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 they put out that statement um you know I think Powell did what he need to, to to ensure that they can slow the pace of rate hike while they um, they could move terminal rates higher. So when we talk about the terminal rate and moving the terminal rate higher, I guess what's the base of that, right? So the market seemed to say, hey, we're going to. The Fed is going to increase the terminal rate, but they're going to do more than what the market's pricing. And the market was pricing your, you know, very good, um, uh, you know, uh, forecast for the kind of four and three quarters to five percent range uh, for the terminal rate. And then we price another hike on top of that. Do, do you think that that the Fed, when we see the dot plot in December, is going to, you know, significantly increase the, you know, increase, I guess, the terminal rate expectations for 2023 by by more than than you know 50 basis points uh, which seems to be what the market's currently uh, currently thinking yeah so first on uh, current market pricing so the mar- market is pricing a terminal rate of uh, an upper end matching 5.25% i think that's fairly fairly priced and i think the market has got 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 has got it um 
And uh, when Powell say that the committee currently has moved up their estimate of terminal rate, I think that, that they, they have moved it up to exactly where the market has priced. And I base that estimation on our uh, 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 a policy rule that Bloomberg Economics developed. So over the past year, we have um, forecast the dot plot using a policy rule, which we uh, modified from the, the inertial Taylor rule. And this policy rule turns out to pretty well ca capture what the Fed is thinking. So I think my sense is that, you know, the Fed is raising rates according to what um, uh, some some form of inertial Taylor rule would, would, would say. And that rule is currently saying that the dot plot uh, terminal rate would be about 5.1%, which means an upper upper and matching 5.25%. So, which of course is pretty close to what you guys have been saying for more or less six months, right? In, in terms of 5%, right? And plus or minus a little bit. And and of course, you know, the, the other thing that from the rates market perspective that I think is a little bit underappreciated and the market's still not pricing, um, at least at the moment, is the fact that that Jay Powell and also a number of other speakers, Lyle Brainerd among them, right? Uh, the, when the vice chair says something, you have to uh, you have to take it pretty seriously. Is that once they reach the terminal rate, that they'll maintain that rate for longer, maybe than they have during previous cycles. So you know, a lot of people that I talk to are like, you know, once they reach the the peak, they're definitely going to be cutting interest rates within six months, like that kind of attitude and the market is still pricing for uh, at least the beginning of cuts to start before the end of 2023 you know i'm skeptical that they'll be able to do that because i think that inflation is likely to that the glide path down of inflation is going to be much slower than the market is pricing and and then and as well as what um maybe consensus forecasts are also saying so so what's your feeling about the future of interest rates like let's say that we get to the peak wherever that is five five and a quarter five and a half in, in March of next year, maybe May, right, depending on how things go. How long after that do you think that the Fed will uh, be able to keep interest rates at that level? And when do you think that we'll wind up seeing the first cuts? Yeah, so so Ira, my, 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 my outlook for the Fed is um, kind of uh, uh, complicated. Like on one hand, we have been ahead in calling for you know, Fed's terminal rates being higher, and that the Fed is serious about raising rates. They're very hawkish. So, so we come across very hawkish. But on the other hand, I also have been skeptical that uh, the Fed uh, is doing enough, or and I, I'm also skeptical as to whether the Fed will have the, you know, fortitude to maintain a restrictive stance even in a deep recession. So I think uh, to your question of how long after terminal rate can, will the Fed cut, it depends uh, very much on what happens to inflation and unemployment. Um, so I think that the, uh, the, the current Fed um, has this reaction function where they think that uh, once the unemployment rates uh, exceed a certain threshold, that they they will they would there would be a dispersion of views among the FOMC with a lot of voices wanting to cut because I do think that the 
composition of the current FOMC leans dullfish, especially in 2023, when a lot of the hawks would have been either retired or they would not be voting. So I think that that unemployment threshold would be about, you know, four to eight to 4.8 to 5% next year. So the uh, median FOMC participant currently foresee unemployment rate rising to 4.4% by the end of next year. And uh, if, if unemployment rate actually rose to, let's say, 5%, yeah, I think they will cut. I, I don't think they, there's enough fortitude on the committee to keep, keep at that level. However, if unemployment rate uh, does play out as they forecast, which is 4.4% by the end of next year, and inflation does fall to, you know, 2.8 or, you know, 3% by the end of next year, I think that they would uh, keep rates indeed at, at close to the uh, terminal peak level through next year and will not cut until the unemployment rate rise to, you know, 4.6% in 2024. Yeah, one of the things that a lot of market participants that I've been talking to are concerned with is will the Fed, in the event that you get a somewhat higher unemployment rate, will the Fed cut interest rates too soon and therefore spur another round of inflation a la the Burns Fed in the mid-1970s? And then, yeah, you know, some people say that that kind of led to um, to the, the strong inflation shock that we got in, in the late 70s and early 1980s. I'm a little bit skeptical of that because there were other geopolitical things going on that, that were also fueling that, but it certainly didn't didn't help. Um, so and any thoughts on in, in that regard? Like, you know, how how do you, you know, headline versus core inflation maybe is part of part of the issue, like which which inflation numbers will the Fed hone in on? You know, the, the Jay Powell has brought up that headline inflation is their their mandate, but they look at core inflation because of the, the less uh, less amount of volatility. And it's not um, not as influenced by by a single product, which which effectively headline is, um, you know, any any thoughts there? Like like what's the reaction function change likely to be like at the Fed? Well, um so I mentioned just now, so, so first let, let me talk about inflation measures. There are four, uh, you know, at least four major inflation measures, right? CPI, headline CPI, core CPI, headline PCE, deflator, core PCE. When, when Jay Powell said he needs to see compelling evidence of inflation decelerating before they will pause, I take that as meaning that all four of those measures have been have to be within like, you know, close to the three, you know, three-ish um, vicinity. Um, if only one or two measures fall to that level and the others don't, that's just not compelling. And we do know that there are a lot of quirkiness in how CPI is measured or PCE is measured that could render, you know, one measure suddenly falling, uh, such as, you know, core CPI, as we, we are going to see starting this Thursday and this Thursday's report that the Medicare component is going to be driving down CPI over the next year. So, but but that's not good enough. That's not called, that's not compelling evidence. So on, on the other issue of, um, you know, um, whether the, the, the Fed has, uh, has, has, you know, would, would be would 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 uh, declare the battle won, but uh, the 
but actually the battle has not been won. Um, one way we looked at that, that is we did a thought exercise where we apply the current Fed's reaction function to the 1970s data and see how Powell would have performed relative to Arthur Burns. Because we know that Arthur Burns failed. There's no question about it. Um, and we also know um, how, how today's Feds react to data, right? Um, so what we found is that Powell would have been even more dovish than Arthur Burns. And, and, and that just highlights the, the I think that highlights the fact that Arthur Burns has very much been interpreted by history from a retrospective uh, kind of revisionist way. Like, because people have the actual data today of what inflation is, but what Arthur Burns had back then is forecasts of inflation. And just like today's Fed, the Fed back in the 70s, keep underestimating uh, inflation and keeps thinking that inflation will, will uh, decelerate when it doesn't. And the forecast mistake uh, only spanned two or three years, just like now. And you actually only need two or three years of miss to unanchor inflation expectations. And that's why Jay Powell has constantly talking about how the clock is ticking, right? And because two or three years of myths is about when, what happened in the 70s. Um, and, and so we found that um, Powell's reaction function in the 70s would have had the terminal rate even lower than Arthur Burns. Arthur Burns raised it to about 13%. Powell's Fed would have raised it to only 9.9%. And not only that, Powell's Fed would have been much slower in raising rates than Arthur Burns uh, Fed. But the good thing about Powell's Fed is that the, the policy rule that the Fed currently follows is that indeed they would have cut rates slower in a more gradual manner. They would have kept rates higher than what Arthur Burns Fed had done through 1977. So, um, what, what, what's our takeaway? So, so I think the takeaway is, um, in many aspects, today's Fed's policy rule is even more dovish than 1970s. So, if the situation we have today, if in by any chance that actually is a repeat of 19 early 1970s, then we would be entering into a wage price spiral. But of course, there are reasons to think we're not in that situation. But it, um, but again, this is just an interesting exercise that if indeed we are in that early 1970s situation where inflation expectations have not unanchored yet, we are only in the beginning of a high inflation era, uh, and you know if Powell were were to be Powell's Fed were to be reacting to that, then uh, we are in deep trouble. Let's talk about, you know, I want to hit on two things, and, and one is related to what you just said. So and, um, in terms of in terms of wage price spiral, a lot of people have been talking about how wages have been rising, and I've certainly noted that, that you, know, you look at aggregate labor income, and that's certainly been rising as quickly as inflation has. And, uh, and, and part of that is related to the tight labor market, and certainly one of the reasons why the Federal Reserve wants to be hawkish and can be hawkish, because the employment situation is relatively robust compared to other periods when um, when you've had an, an inflationary impulses in the U.S. So is, you know, how much do you worry about the labor side of things pushing and creating a wage price spiral? 
Well, you know, labor market indicators are always lagging uh, cyclical indicators. And so layoffs only happen after all other macro indicators are you know, falling down the cliff. And in this cycle, the, I think that I have reasons to suspect that the lags are even longer because firms are hoarding labor after, you know, months of labor shortages, right? Um, so, however, once the layoffs happen, to begin to happen, it usually happens very, very fast. So, like in 1953, I think, in, in that recession, the unemployment rate increased by 1.4 percentage point in a matter of only three months. It's like when when everybody starts laying off people, uh, it's like people, someone yelled fire in a movie theater and everybody is trying to rush out of the room. Nobody wants to be caught having, you know, excess labor costs on, on their, you know, on the payroll. Um, so so I think it's hard to tell right now, um, you know, whether um, the wage growth would persist to be at a high level next year because I, I we're we're sort of at a state of holding our breath right now of when this steep fall in you know on an employment and non-farm non payroll will happen it could happen at any moment now I mean you have a lot of anecdotes describing layoffs and um, the Fed is raising rates very rapidly. The global economy is losing steam. Um, I, I would just be humble here and just say we don't know when that when that non-linear jump in unemployment rate would happen, but once it does, it will be very fast. So that, that's that's really interesting because obviously one of the things that I've been noting is with the you know aggregate labor income remaining as high as it is, then you know that just makes services inflation in particular more sustainable. Um, and, and the other thing that I would note is when you look at where a lot of the job gains are, a lot of the job gains are in sectors where there's not a lot of public companies because people have said, oh look at all the layoffs in tech. Like there's been you know a couple of thousand people laid off in in the technology sector. It seems like a lot, and certainly there are companies that are. Being being followed but then you have a lot of private companies that are still hiring and still uh, you know look at the NFIB survey and, and it shows that they're still very difficult to hire people because there's not qualified candidates so um, you have this disconnect between kind of I think the public markets and what what some companies are saying that that are in the public limelight versus mom and pop and and smaller um, smaller and mid-sized businesses that aren't necessarily public so last thing that I want to touch on and, and this is something very much related to the rates market is Jay Powell mentioned that he wants to see positive real rates throughout the curve. When he says that, that might be somewhat different than what some market participants suggest. So, um, for example, when when he says, you know, real rates have, need to be positive throughout the curve, and I look at the tips curve, and, you know, most tips, uh, you know, through that are one year and longer, they have positive yields. So, therefore, the market's expectation of real yields, um, you know, one year and longer are all positive. But that's probably not what Jay Powell means, Anna. So do, can you explain to our listeners what Jay Powell is talking about when he says he wants to see positive real yields throughout the curve? You know, I, I think I read that. I think uh, much of what you said is probably what Jay Powell is talking about. That's why they they uh, see a case for slowing the pace of rate hikes because because, the you know, the justification for slowing the pace, even though inflation readings keep on being uh, more robust is, you know, there are two reasons. One is because long and variable lags, right? But the second is because I, I do think that they look at that, um, the real rates across the curve 
and they see that it's restrictive enough. Because he said, once we expeditiously, Jay Powell said, once we get to expeditiously get, get to a restrictive level, you can look around and that's when you slow the pace of rate hikes. And so that's what, what he's talking about. However, I would just um, differentiate um, real rates into, you know, an ex-ante real rates versus exposed real rates. Because a lot of them, you know, what I think I think when people talk about uh, real rates, they're they're um, assuming that it is, um, you know, ex ante real rates because the measures you look at is deflating the uh, yields ahead by expectations of inflation measures. Right. And you could easily see that they could be positive just because markets have a very optimistic outlook of inflation. And you know what? The, in the past two years, they have been consistently wrong, similar to consensus economists' forecast. So I'm not laying blame here, but just say the direction of the mistake is that they assume a smaller inflation. And so that positive real rates might be overstating the restrictiveness of of rates ex ante, so I mean expose. Expose is um, the nominal yield minus actual inflation. Um, you know, so one year ahead, nominal yield minus actual inflation next year, as opposed to ex ante, where it's uh, minus today's expectation of next year in, in, uh, inflation. So, for example, this year the exposed inflation uh, real rates for this year would have been really, really negative, way more negative than the ex-ante real rates, right? What does that mean? It means that, well, it might look restrictive now, but when uh, when the time comes for people to pay off those, uh, you know, the debts, um, they realize, whoa, it's actually, it takes less to pay them off. So, it, in fact, it would turn out to be less restrictive than you think if, the exposed real rates is actually negative. Well, that's great. I just want to leave it with this. Some of the work that uh, that, that I've been doing, and I pointed this out quite quite frequently, is that the Federal Reserve, since in the post-war period, since we basically had uh, some type of target rate that we could uh, we could capture, has always increased interest rates until the what you would I guess say the ex-post <laughs> Fed funds rate versus the one-year uh, trailing uh, headline PC measure has been zero. So they've never uh, they never stopped tightening until you get uh, the uh, um, basically the real Fed funds rate to uh, to zero. Not necessarily positive all the time, by the way. So they, they have stopped when it's been zero, but of course inflation is usually falling by then, so it becomes positive later. Um, and that's completely possible next year, depending on how the economy shapes up and if we do get that nonlinear decline in uh, in employment, the employment situation that Anna just mentioned. Anna, thank you very much again for coming on the FIC Focus podcast. Uh, good to be here. But by the way, Ira, I have a little fun fed fact. Thing. Oh, excellent. The fun fed fact segments back. Anna, give us that fun fed fact. Okay. So do you know that the dual mandate of the, the, the origin of the Fed's dual mandate is actually very um, uh, interesting that it actually was part of it was signed into law in 1978. And the timing of this dual mandate is kind of interesting because it actually followed 
the very deep recession engineered by Arthur Burns in 1974-75. And, you know, the pre prevailing political atmosphere then is like the Fed has engineered this deep recession. A lot of people hated the, the Fed then. And so these politicians uh, decided to make it into law that the Fed has to consider full employment in, as part of their goals. But the even more interesting fact is that, in fact, the, the law didn't start out as um, writing in a dual mandate. In fact, the fact that the law uh, designs for the Fed to have triple mandate. And the third mandate was actually that the Fed has to have low long-term interest rates. But over time, um, the, the Fed just excluded that third mandate because it just sort of clashed with the first two mandates. And they, they argue by saying that, saying that, well, as long as they follow the first two mandate, low interest rates will follow. So, Yes, and uh, so and actually, if you read some of the policy statements back from the early 1970s when they were starting to kind of go away from that that third mandate, um, they, they kind of discussed if low meant low real rates versus low <laughs> versus just low absolute nominal rates. So with that, we're at time. Anna, thank you very much again for coming on the FIC Focus podcast. I've been Ira Jersey. If you have any ideas for topics or guests that you'd like us to have on the show, please uh, give, drop us a line on the Bloomberg Terminal. And until next time, be well. Mm -hmm.